This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast as the nights get darker and darker and we're in that horrible phase where uh, we're right at the end of the tennis season and we're about to go best part of a month without any tennis of real note. Uh, although the week have, of course, got the Davis Cup finals coming up at the end of the year and, and who can forget the Champions Tennis at the Royal Albert Hall and everything that that brings with it in terms of competitiveness. But we have much more to talk about this week before any of that. Um, we're going to talk about a quite disturbing uh, and breaking story coming out of China regarding Peng Shui. I know lots of you have been talking about it on Twitter and we're going to cover that. Um, we'll talk about Emma Raducanu. She's finally got a new coach. Uh, Annie Murray's season is also over. Um, he lost to Tommy Paul last week and we'll discuss whether that was reasonable. At least he did win the title. Uh, Iga Shontek was in tears at the WTA finals. Annette Conservate uh, wasn't. She's been absolutely flying. Um, and the ATP finals are underway. And of course, we get to talk about uh, Carlitos Alcaraz because he has stamped his mark on the tour once again. Um, but before any of that, we have to talk about some pretty serious matters uh, off court regarding Peng Shui. For those of you who aren't aware of the story, let me just give you a little bit of background on exactly what's gone on so far and, and the news that has just been breaking in the last um, couple of minutes, really. Um, Peng Shui has uh, essentially gone missing for want of a better phrase um i know there's a daily mail article that says she's vanished but with no real attribution to that um uh, george i think has spoken to to some people who have been unable to get in contact with her lots of people have been unable to get in contact with her i think it's fair to say at this point that no one knows where she is um the chinese tennis federation say that she's fine um but uh we you know there's no real confirmation of that um, it follows a, a lengthy post that she put on Weibo, which was subsequently deleted pretty soon afterwards, um, alleging uh, a senior member of the Chinese government, a former vice premier, I believe, in the uh, Chinese Communist Party, of some pretty serious um, sexual assault and abuse. Um, that post, as I say, was then then deleted um, from Weibo, which is the kind of Chinese of Twitter. Um and uh, she, you know, she hasn't been heard from since, essentially. Um, 
there was a, a statement come out from WTA, which I'll read you just now from Steve Simon, WTA chairman, um, saying that the recent events in China concerning a WTA player, Peng Shui, are of deep concern. As an organization dedicated to women, we remain committed to the principles we have founded on equality, opportunity, and respect. Peng Shui and all women deserve to be heard, not censored. Her accusation about the conduct of a former Chinese leader involving sexual assault must be treated with the utmost seriousness. In all societies, the behaviour she alleges that took place needs to be investigated, not condoned or ignored. We commend her for remarkable courage and strength in coming forward. Women around the world are finding their voices so injustices can be corrected. We expect this issue to be handled properly, meaning the allegations must be investigated fully, fairly, transparently and without censorship. Our absolute and unwavering priority is the health and safety of our players. We are speaking out so justice can be done. Um, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that that statement amazes, I think, all of us on the grounds that um, it's the right, I think, the right thing to do, just from my own perspective. And, you know, it's important that WTA stand up for women, but, you know, as, a, as, a, as they say, as an organisation dedicated to women. But, George, I think probably you and I were both, I think we're all surprised to see him speak out because, you know, China are a very powerful and uncompromising regime generally. And the WTA have a lot of involvement in China. Yeah, I mean, financially, the WTA really rests heavily on um, on Chinese uh, finances. So obviously, you've got the WTA finals there. That's an incredibly lucrative deal that they've signed over 10 years for it to be hosted in Shenzhen. And there's really a big, essentially a three-month period, really, where there are tour events going on in China. Um, so, yeah. From a financial point of view, it's um, a, a bold step, I suppose. From a humanitarian one, it obviously had to come, really. Um, there's been a lot of concern within the organisation and within tennis generally about this. Um, you know, it's, it's hard. To, you don't really want to speculate what exactly has happened um, at that end, but it's the best case scenario she's just being very heavily censored at the moment and no one's heard her speaking publicly um, i mean so well that but that would include like you know people have tried to contact her in other ways like in private ways and you know by, by phone calls or emails or whatever and no one in the west has heard or, or in fact to be fair in chinese sources has heard anything from her um yeah. as you say george we don't want to speculate exactly as to what's happened to her or where she is but for context and for people who maybe don't know a huge amount about the CCP, this is a regime that relatively routinely treats people in ways that we do not find acceptable in Western society, especially those who speak out against the regime. You know, there, there are specific instances when people have alleged um, sexual misconduct against members of the party and they have pretty much had their wings clipped in the very strongest way, including, although not limited to, um, things like torture, things like unlawful arrest or um, being held. Uh, they use a thing called internal exile in China as a fairly standard punishment, where you're basically sent to live in a distant part of China and kind of, you know, censored. And, and, and you know, this is not, not to mention the CCP's pretty widely accepted um, effective genocide, you know, of the, the Ouija people in northwest China and various other human rights kind of, abuses for want of a better word um so you know again we don't know what's happened to peng shui but we should not not take it seriously because of that 
it, it is a regime that I don't think it's unreasonable to say should be feared, um, given their track record on a lot of this stuff. What she did was incredibly brave. Some people would even say stupid to, to be in China and to speak out in that way and not expect the CCP to come after her. And I, you know, I, I almost wish she'd, she'd kind of claimed political asylum somewhere and said, look, this is what's happened. Now I'm going to talk about it because I think then at least we'd know where she was, but, but we don't. Um, what we can hope is by the WTA speaking out and kind of, you know, hopefully drawing much more attention to this is that there is a lot more attention on the Chinese regime now. And this is a regime that's much more conscious of their image in the West, uh, what the West thinks of them and, and their kind of how that role comes. Calvin, is this going to make it much harder for them to sweep it under the carpet and make it disappear? Um, I think they'll probably just ignore it. Um, I don't imagine the CCP's, I don't imagine it's top of their priority, uh, <laughs> replying to the WTA. And I think, what, as we've seen before, with recently with basketball, they have no problem just, just shutting everything down and uh, being pretty hardcore about it. It, it just seems... It's just so strange, isn't it? Because, as I said in our WhatsApp group earlier, it's easy to solve if she is fine and everything's okay. Just show where she shows where she is, mm. um, or, or you'd think that she, if she was fine, she would have said something at this stage. Uh, um, if I mean, she knows other players. I imagine she's friends with other players, and and they don't appear to have heard anything from her from a few, I guess, minimal tweets that I've seen today from WTA players. No one mm. seems to have heard from her, so it doesn't look clever, does it? No, no, not at all. Um, yeah, and, and I suppose, you know, as you say, she, she's she's not been backward about coming forward. I mean, it may be that she's, I don't know, fearing for her safety and is, is maybe in hiding. I mean, even that is not a particularly good state of affairs. So, um, you know, I, th- I think we'd all just like to see that she's safe, first of all. Um, George, how does this kind of... If, if this can change, if we, and I say we as a whole tennis community, rather than just we three here, um, and in, indeed we as listeners and, and tennis fans, um, how do we have an impact here? Is there anything that tennis can do to, to make the Chinese authorities kind of, A, <laughs> will release or, or show us that Peng Shui is safe, and B, investigate these really serious allegations that she's made? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, the, the obvious next step really is if, if there's no strong response or no actual evidence, I suppose, of uh, Peng's safety is that I think both tours have to take United Front and pull everything out of China, to be honest. I think that that is the only way that the sport can maintain any shred of integrity in this matter if it carries on like this. Um, but, it's so hard to say at this stage which way this is going to go. I mean, Calvin's right that will the Chinese government be that bothered about the WTA kind of speaking up against them? They could easily just kind of black out the sport full stop, both on the WTA and the ATP side. Um, it's about how much attraction this gains. And I think it's really important to talk about it and get as much airtime on this as possible because it is absolutely mental thing to be happening right now you know, I hate the phrase in the 21st century, but in the 21st century, you know, it's mad this sort of stuff that able to happen. And for someone to have won Wimbledon, won the French Open, you know, just to go poof, vanish for a week, I mean, it's, it's utter craziness. So, yeah, I, I think they just need to keep banging the drum. 
And we as a media have to pay attention. I think that's the most important thing we can do on this podcast and other outlets in the UK is actually care about it. Like take off the, the typical rule that if there's not a British person involved or whatever, or a Western person involved, don't talk about it. I mean, bloody hell, we need to, this, is, this is absolutely crazy. We need to really like draw attention to this. Um, but yeah, I just want to say again that I really hope she is okay and this is some sort of crazy misunderstanding, but uh, unfortunately I'm uh, not, not feeling too uh, sure and upbeat about that. It's, I think it's relevant what George said there about they could just black out the sport because China's very unique situation in that probably WTA and ATP events in the country are secondary to what is the most popular tennis events that they have. That we, we Most people don't know about this, but China have these huge internal competitions for tennis and for other sports where they're sort of they're kind of regional um events but also each, they're team events and they each team represents a, uh, an area and they're sponsored by huge companies who are out there and this is one of the reasons why you, you don't see relative to how big china is and how many people there are in china you don't see many chinese people comparative playing the main tours particularly the men but also some of the women and when Li Na retired she didn't actually retire she went to play specifically in these Chinese in this Chinese sort of league it's hard to ex- explain really what it is um but they kind of could, like a, what I'm a saying state is that they could, they could, yeah it kind of is it's kind of it's kind of regional but also the companies are relevant the companies that they sort of align themselves with a team um, but and that's really what the Chinese their their main sort of tennis is that, and then the international stuff is kind of stuff that they do on the side. So right. it's not it's it's entirely feasible that they could just go right. We we don't even care if you don't have any events here. We've got plenty of tennis here. Um, and I imagine probably I, I don't know if, if I don't know what the public think of it. But then again, the flip side of that is that when, although when Chinese people do well internationally, that's huge in China. So mm. I don't know, but I think it's for, for example, like America couldn't go. We'll just do away with a sport because they wouldn't. I guess maybe basketball. They could. They could say we'll do away with international sport. Or Britain couldn't go. We'll just do away with any international football, for example. Mm. Um, but. To, but China, to sport in China is very, it's very odd, very, um, yeah, very unique. Mm. I mean, you do have to question what the Chinese are getting out of a deal with the WTA in terms of the amount of money they're pouring in. I mean, they are paying far above market value, and when you look at the stadiums there, they're they're never that full. Um, so I mean, well, sorry, just to, I mean, let's not be naive, George. We know what they're paying for. They're paying for. <laughs> A sports washing opportunity that is, you know, pretty sure, but unrivaled. I, sure, but I just mean in terms of general, what are they going to get? Into the the, the money is never going to be the issue, is it? I mean, if, if the WTA, what I'm saying is the WTA don't hold that many cards in terms of just pulling out of China. I mean, the WTA probably needs the Chinese money more than, far more than China needs the WTA yeah. uh, in, in kind of raw financial terms. Um, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what what could escalate it is um tennis is obviously an olympic sport um and the ioc have never been shy about kind of throwing their weight around when it suits them um you know the ioc unfortunately are about to hold a massive event in china 
Um, in February, they, Beijing will become the first city in history to host a winter and a summer games, I believe, um, certainly in the modern era. So, you know, the IOC, to a certain extent, are quite in bed with the Chinese regime. Um, but they could certainly say, and it's happened in boxing. Um, anyone who knows anything about amateur boxing will know that the AIBA is, um, I don't think I'm libeling anyone when I say that it's um, not a, an organisation that is unused to a spot of corruption, whether it be in its uh, elections or in its actual day-to-day running. Um, and the IOC threatened to basically kick boxing out of the Olympics because it was so badly run. I'm not saying that the IOC are going to turn around to China and say, we're going to take the Winter Olympics off you because your tennis federation has clearly done something wrong. Um, but that is one of those back channels that could certainly be worked. And that's kind of what we're talking about here now. Um, you know, this has turned into a much more geopolitical conversation than a tennis one, but it is an important one. Um, when these things happen, it goes way beyond the WTA. The WTA have come out and talked about it, but, you know, it should be clear to everyone that this will be these conversations will be going on at a much higher level, you know, than, than the desk of Steve Simon, I assure you. There will be British government figures considering what this means. There, there will be American government figures, American ambassadorial staff in China, British ambassadorial staff in China, who will be part of these conversations. Um, and I said to you earlier, George, I don't think US and the UK governments will get involved because there's no real need for them to. You know, if she was a British player, obviously that would be completely different. If she was someone who was maybe had lived in Britain or well known here, and similarly with the US. But in a back channels way, they certainly will be involved. Um, the problem really is that, and a bit like the WTA, we don't have much hold over China at the moment. And and generally it's hard to make the Chinese regime do things that we they would don't want to do, as anyone who's been following the COP26 climate conference has kind of seen. So it's not going to be easy to fix on any level, whether it's on a tennis or a much, much wider level. I'd, I'd even think that even, even with the players, I mean, ideally what I'd like to see is the players making a stance over it. I've seen some of the, the some of the female players kind of have, but I, I obviously got friends in sports management and I know what will happen. I've not spoken to them on it, but I know if I said to those guys who are my friends who work in sports management, well, maybe the players should be making a, a statement here. They would all go, well, we'd advise against it because the market in front in, in China is so big and we, we don't want to upset our players don't want to be upsetting the Chinese market. So, mm-hmm. and it, it's a sad state of affairs, but that is the, basically the, the agents control how the players, what the players do, and the, the the money talks, and that's a sad state of affairs. I would be very surprised if we see any real chat from any of the players, other than a little couple of hashtags over the next couple of days. Yeah, um, yeah. Just on that, I mean, there is a hashtag going, which is where is Peng Shui, um, and it, it kind of the 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 relevant case, I guess, is Meza Erzil, who obviously spoke out against the genocide of the Uyghurs in China, and. He was instantly banned from all Chinese social networks. You basically can't hit, you can't see Meza Ozil's name in China now, basically. They even started trying to ban Arsenal Football Club as a whole. They, they banned their Weibo page for a while. Um, should be said, I've seen a few players tweet about it. A couple of the British players, um, Liam Brody, Elisa Cornet, Nico Mahu has tweeted about it as well. Um, and a couple of others. And I apologize to anyone who I've missed out. But, you know, with the greatest respect to Brody's great guy, but, you know, he's not Naomi Osaka. He's not Serena Williams. He's not Roger Federer, Djokovic, Nadal. I think they're the kind of names you need to get involved. And Calvin, as you said, 
I don't think they will for the exact reasons you stated. I, th- I think as well, I think it's important that the two names is Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka who kind of sort of set their stall out that they're kind of protectors of women's rights, mental uh, mental health, that kind of thing. And I'm mm-hmm. sure genuinely, but now's the time for them to step up as well. Like, let's see what, let's, let's really put your money where our mouth is here. And let's, let's I, I want to see one of those, one of those guys make a move. And I hope I'm being cynical in saying so. I bet we don't hear from any of them. I think um, the other mild issue on that front is that you can imagine if, if the tour was kind of in full flight now, people would be asked about it every day. That The reality is we're down to the last two two events of the season, really, and uh, none of the biggest names are playing. So I imagine it, you hope it's put to Novak this week in Turin. That's someone who will, I'd imagine, have the opportunity to speak about it. Um, yeah. Obviously, you've got the WCA finals going the minute so I hope people are asked about that there um, and then you've got the Davis Cup after and I, I reckon if this is put to Murray if it's still going on by then that's someone I'd imagine would and, and if Murray's there we should say if he's there of course yeah fair, fair comment he might not be um, <laughs> if, if he's not there it'd be quite hard to criticise him for not saying something but yes yeah you're, you're right George that there are lots of opportunities in the next couple of weeks for big names in tennis and yeah I hope I hope the tennis media does does the right thing um you know i I've been on holiday for the last week, so I'm not on WTA finals duty. Um, but I, I know there are lots of good journalists who are. And I I don't think, you never like to predict, but I hope that those journalists stand up and do what they know is right um, and that more people will talk about it. Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm happy to throw the floor open if anyone has anything else they want to say on it. I think we've covered lots of bits of it and, I'm sure we'll talk about it more on social media, um, of course, over the next couple of weeks. But um, yeah, I think the the final thing we should say is we desperately hope that she is fine and that she's safe and that that we hear from her soon and that she's given the chance to tell her story and have her story properly investigated. That they would be the really key takeaways. Um, it's really hard when you talk about these really big topics to move on and say, okay, well now we're going to talk about. Emma Raducanu's new coach, but I hope no one thinks that we're uh, minimising the issue by by doing so. But there are other things going on in the tennis world uh, this week. We wanted to start with Peng Shui, so we have. Um, but we do also want to talk about Emma Raducanu. Um, we've talked a heck of a lot about Emma Raducanu's coaching situation, but she hasn't had one, basically. Or she's had lots, depending on your point of view. Uh, she finally, <laughs> in one of my favourite tennis story breaks in a while was someone took a picture of her in a coffee shop in Bromley with Torben belts uh, and it eventually transpired that Torben was coming to an end of his latest stint with Angelique Kerber uh, who he's had a huge amount of uh, success with uh, and would be a free agent and he was quickly snapped up by Camp Raducanu um, he's now going to do a pre-season with her and then the Australian Open and as always, we have no idea how long this deal may may last. Um, George, I, I assume this took you by surprise or at least blindsided you as much as anyone else, but I suppose it's good we've got a name that we can now just keep throwing around. Yeah, it's nice, nice to have someone set on the job for a bit. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it goes, how long it lasts for. As Calvin kind of always cynically says, I mean, I don't want to... Think she'll keep anyone beyond the Australian Open at the minute because you know there's there's no form to suggest she's willing to stick with one guy. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. But 
yeah, I'm glad she sort of on the set for the off season because I think there's a lot of work to do there, um, which is kind of odd to say for someone who's won a Grand Slam at 18. But there are, you can see from now we've seen her kind of start to do a bit more kind of what I call the rigors of the WTA tour that there are definite flaws in her game um, and. Perhaps I was going to say mentality, perhaps that's a little bit strong, but certainly physicality, which is then leading into the mentality, you know, taking bad shots at the wrong time, trying to overhit too quickly rather than playing away into points a lot of the time, um, which can be both a physical and a mental thing. And the two are hard to separate on that front. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's obviously a positive step. Uh, Torben's got good experience, did good work with Angelique Kerber. He's had a spell with Donna Vekic. So in terms of ticking off what she wanted of an experienced tour coach, he's certainly that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I hate to say it's going to be a marriage that lasts years and years and years because there's little evidence for that at the moment, but I hope it goes very well. Uh, Calvin, I know Torben is not someone that you necessarily know, but um, I also know that you, you've been pestered for opinions on him. So have you formed one yet? Um, I don't know him at all, really. I mean, it, and I don't wish this to make out to be to sound any any sort of really negative or anything, but the whole thing has a bit of an air of Spurs appointing Nuno Gomez, doesn't it? That they've they've kind of been around everyone else, didn't manage to get the one they wanted, and now we've kind of got someone who everyone's kind of gone oh right okay I guess he's quite good which is what what, what kind of Spurs were like when they they pointed Nuno Gomez um but Nuno um Santos. not Nuno Gomez or Nuno <laughs> Santos. Santos, that, that's the one not Nuno Gomez the, the bloke so anonymous that not even you know his name <laughs> yeah exactly yeah um but no I mean I, I don't no one really seems to know if he's uh, you know what level he is. he's he's got a good pedigree and I use pedigree um I, select that word specifically because I think what it's easy to do with coaches especially at the top level and, and I've made no bones about it that the the coaching at the coaching in the top 100 of the women's game is the lowest standard of coaching of any level of coaching that I've ever seen um overall there are some very good coaches there given um and but I don't like to just look at say oh well he's worked with this player because you get a lot of people who do that if if I if 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 I go and do six months with um, Novak Djokovic tomorrow, it doesn't make me a better coach because I've coached Novak Djokovic tomorrow. I'm, I'm still the same quality of coach as I am without coaching him. So mm-hmm. I think what you should always look at is not who a co- who a coach has worked with, but did they improve them more than their par level of what you would expect improvement to have been. And, yeah. and I think that that's that's a good way to do it. And I don't, I, if I'm honest, I don't know enough about his. Um, his success at different stages with with Angelique Kerber. She's obviously a very good player. Yeah, I think, I mean, to be fair, I think, did he take Kerber when she was outside the top 80, top 100? So he definitely did progress her to, this, to, a, to a good level. I mean, I, I don't remember watching Kerber as a, a young junior and thinking she's destined to be a, a three-time slam champion. Amazing, but maybe that's my memory failing me. I mean, that's a long time ago now. I, I, I probably it's enormously long time ago. <laughs> again, again, though, I think it's again, and I'm not saying this specifically to Torben uh, Belts. Um, it, it's again, it's how you judge that because I, I, I can't remember where Kerber was in in the um, sort of grand scheme of things. But just because a player, if you take a player at this ranking and then you go, oh well, they he took he took her from you know he took that player from from 300 to 80. That's fine, but if you got hold of 
I don't know if you got if you got hold of Roger Federer when he was eighteen and three hundred in the world, and he ended up at eighty. That's not necessarily the coach that did that. That's somebody who was on that pathway. And again, Herber might not have been on that pathway. I don't. I don't remember enough of the time. But that's somebody. If you, you, what I'm talking about is somebody who who improves the learning curve more than you would expect the pathway to have been. Mm. Um, and I, I think that that's what it's kind of such a complex thing. And I think what we always tend to do is. Again, and this happens in all sports, in football and everything, where we talk about this idea of, oh, he's a winner. Just because a manager wins, a a manager or a coach wins something with a player, it doesn't mean, it, it could be, again, we come back to this, that correlation is not the same as causation. And it might not be, they might have won a slam in spite of the coach. They might have won a, a slam because of the coach, or it might be somewhere in between, usually. I should clarify what I was saying before, is that actually the, they were together a long time before, and then he rejoined her team when she'd had a bit of a dip. I think. Right. So I think, then I think, they. I think, I think it, 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 he has had like four different spells working with her potentially, um, and I think it should be noted that generally he's come in when she's been at a low ebb and done a good job. Um, he yeah. joined her for the third time in 2015, and she won her first Grand Slam title nine months later. He came back. Three after three years out in last summer, and I think we can agree Angelique Kerber's had a pretty good fifteen months since then, as far as I can remember. Um, you know, she's been a name we've talked about in the latter stages of Grand Slams a bit more. So, so I think he has. You know, again, it, it's it's ludicrously complicated, but on the very limited evidence we have, I, I, I think. So that the, the the harder thing that's to split here is that is he just got a good relationship with this player that he's then making her more comfortable as well. I mean that that's I, I suppose hard to know if it's amazing coaching or just like almost man management almost in some ways. Like is she happier traveling with him? Is she bringing the best sense? I don't know. I mean Calvin can speak more to this of like what what the effect the coach has in that situation. I guess. I think as well, it's also, it's also as you go higher up the levels, it's not necessarily the on-court stuff that that is relevant as well. You know, a lot of, even when at the level I coach at and and, and higher than that, I think a lot of the, the interesting discussions are not really what happens in practice. Practice tends to be the same most of the time unless something specific turns up. It can be just at dinner. You can just be at dinner and a conversation can open up about, about something, about something that happened in a match or about something with their tennis. So I think it's relevant that, that being on tour with them can can help, and that that may help her. It's a different a different pair of ears for her. But I think when sort of looking at at a coach and into what they can do is like the two examples I'd use is if you look at Brad Gilbert when when Andre Agassi started working with Brad Gilbert, Agassi was he was outside the top one hundred, I think, um, and then started working with Gilbert and had a phenomenal upturn, ended up winning U.S. Open as a wild card, uh, ended up getting to world number one, I think, about eight months after that. And then had a huge amount of success and then they split up and then Gilbert then went and worked with Andy Roddick, who was kind of stagnating a bit. He was a, he was a well-known junior, but wasn't quite breaking through. Went and worked with Andy Roddick and won US Open with him. Mm. Um, and you compare that, for example, that those are examples I would say was that he had a huge impact on both players. You can compare that with then Boris Becker, who came in and worked with Novak Djokovic when he was already comfortably the best player in the world and end up winning a few slams. And then it's like, you get people then, people then go, oh, you can't, can't have a go at Becker. He won slams with Djokovic. It's like, he's already <laughs> winning slams before Becker came on board. 
Like, and that's not criticism of Becker, but I, I failed to see. And, it, and it, he won a load of slams before Becker came on board, and he's won a load after. I, yeah. I'm struggling really to see the impact that Becker had. Whereas, for example, Roddick never won another slam after he stopped working with um, with Brad Gilbert. Agassi, when they stopped working together, had a had a bit of a downturn again, and then he got himself back together with Darren Cahill. George, did you did you have something to add, or have you given up? Well, no, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I guess I, I just kind of go back to my previous point. Like, sometimes it's more about just, are you enjoying being with this person? Is it fun? I think he seems like quite a... He's a guy who seems to be able to maintain decent length relationships with players. So that that's, a, I think, quite a positive for Emma, who's looking to find some stability now. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know enough about him as personally as a guy to kind of comment if I think it would be amazing or not but yeah hopefully it goes well mm, yes um, yeah Emma Raducanu and Torben Belts they'll be waiting together in the next couple of months um, I suppose we should wrap up her season um, she finished off in Linz uh, she was beaten in the first round which happened just after or well, second round I beg your pardon she she beat the ever tricky bye in the first round <laughs> Um, but she was beaten by Wang Jinyu in the second round. I think, right, saying both of you watched it. I was um, otherwise engaged. Uh, it was a, a bit of a ding dong. Is that fair to say, George? I, <clears throat> I actually really enjoyed it as a match. Um, I thought, I actually thought Wang did play pretty well. Um, I, I watched from the second set, and I, I was seeing a few people in the first set. Like, in fact, as I loaded the uh, second set, I remember hearing a commentator say. Oh, Wang's just played Raducanu off the court. And I was like, really? I, I don't believe this. I just don't believe it. I imagine like Emma's been spraying loads of errors. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty good tight match. A lot of kind of toing and froing. Um, I, I didn't actually view it as a complete disaster for Raducanu. I mean, it looks kind of not great on paper losing to the world number 106, but I thought Wang played well above her ranking. And Emma, as we've said before, is probably realistically closer to a, top 50 player rather than top 20 at the minute. Um, <clears throat> but the the main concern I had, again, is the physicality issues right at the end um, and and some of the mentality that comes with that. She fought pretty well on match points, but there's sometimes a tendency just really to swing for everything and anything. And I'm not sure if that's linked to just struggling in these long matches when it gets a bit more physical is she kind of, is her body there? Does she feel comfortable? Does she feel she has to go for it because she's feeling pain? Or is it a lack of concentration? Is she checking out? I don't know. It, it, it's hard to say, but I think that's a bit of a worrying pattern for me at the moment. Um, even though she did, she did fight pretty well in this, there were still a few moments where there was one ludicrous attempt at like a backhand drive volley uh, on break point where she could have just let the ball bounce, run around and spanked a forehand easily. I mean, it was the slowest ball and it's not an easy shot like a jumping back and drive volley. It went about three meters beyond the baseline. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, Calvin, shot, if, shot if you Calvin, if you were in Torben's position um, this winter, just briefly, um, what what would be your kind of main focuses? I think he could be in a pot potentially a difficult position because it seems that she set a stall out that she needs to she she needs to leather everything. Mm. That seems to be from the three matches I've seen from her since the U.S. Open. That seems to be what she's doing. Now, any coach has got a problem if, if you go in and the player already has a set idea of what they want to do. 
Now, it might be a case that he thinks she needs to leather everything as well, but I somewhat doubt that, being that he's a sensible coach, probably, and he's worked with Angelique Kerber. So yeah. you're kind of already, he's going to have to talk her out of like, and, and I assume that she hasn't come up with this herself of like, right, I'm not leathering the ball enough. That sort of looks to me like her dad might have been advising something there, which tends to happen. So then you're already coming in on a kind of like a preset idea of how she thinks she should be developing and, and what a coach might think she should develop be developing. But I think it's more that, again, just more all round. It's difficult because she's already got, it's not difficult. She's already got a pretty complete game. There's not huge amounts of weaknesses in it. There's things as always that you can get better at. But I think, as I keep saying, all that's happened is she hasn't had a drop off since the U S open. She just kind of reverted to the mean and, has played some tricky opponents that probably style-wise don't match up to her as well as the opponents she played in the US Open. Um, so I think she's probably not far off and maybe the US Open she was swinging at a few and they were going in and they're not going in anymore. Another British player ended their season uh, this week, or at least we think so. I know that the uh, the LTA are hoping that he might cling on and end up in Austria for the Davis Cup, but Andy Murray's season appears to be over, depending on uh, what he decides uh, next week. Um, he had a great start to the week. Uh, he got through his first match in straight sets, something we've been saying he's not been doing a huge amount of, um, but no, he, he put away uh, Victor Durasevic, the man who I said I'd never heard of, uh, in relatively simple fashion. He then beat Yannick Sinner, I think, which we all said and he said was his best win uh, of this second phase of his career. He went out to Tommy Paul and we'll, we'll get into that as well. Uh, but Calvin, I know you, you were pretty forthright on, on that being Murray's best win. Did, did it say as much about Sinner as it did about Murray? Yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting match. And the thing that stood out to me, and I always say that the, I think the closest sport to tennis is boxing. Um, I don't know if you've got any boxing fan listeners, and I know you do a lot of work in boxing, James. It, it reminded me of a real Bernard Hopkins performance um, <laughs> late on his career. And specifically, reminded me when Bernard Hopkins fought um, the Puerto Rican guy. I forget what he's called. Basically, this guy came in and he was just a big puncher and, and, and Hopkins tied him up. And that's what Murray did. Like he, he basically, Sinner was coming in trying to land one-shot blows all the time. And Murray tied him up with all sorts of, little sort of changes of pace, changes of spin, put him in awkward angles, never let him set. And he was just constantly, he beat him really with with experience. Um, and it was kind of how, I think it kind of looked like the, uh, the classic performance of how Murray is going to have to play if this thing is going to stretch on. I think that that was the blueprint. He now has the blueprint. He now knows he can win those matches. What we still don't know is if he can win them match after match after match, which, mm. as we saw again, after a big win, there's a downfall. And I I have... This is a major concern for me with Murray with this, because I, and I've always said this since he came back, Murray has always had this problem where, even when he was fully fit at the peak of his powers, he gets into these problems where he's losing sets. He gets himself in battles when there's no need to. And I think the match against Tommy Paul is specifically that. He didn't take care of it at the start of the match. He let Paul get into the match. And Paul played well at the start of the match. But Murray, if the top players don't do that. Djokovic doesn't let 
he doesn't go like four one down or whatever it is to Tommy Paul in the first set. It doesn't happen. Nadal doesn't do that. Murray has always done that kind of stuff, going two sets to live down to Adrian Manorino at the French US Open, that kind of thing. And that's a habit of a lifetime. He's going to have to change if that's going to stop. But he can't. He can't do that now. Not at his age and not with his limitations. I wonder if it, he's always. I mean, yeah, you're right. Um, and I, I wouldn't disagree with you on on much of that. But he's always been a bit of a slow starter, and I. I don't know what that comes from. I wonder if it's because he is that kind of, you know, counter-punching, absorbing kind of player. So almost necessarily you can't start fast like that. I don't know. Does that make any sense or is that just waffle? Yeah, there's a degree to that. And I guess like when he's played, if he's the favourite and there's an underdog, there's a, there's a large element that the other guy is going to come out swinging. But mm. he's such a good player again. And I think we come back to this thing of, and again, I, I don't want to bore people with it. We come back to this ball three thing. And there, there were classic examples of that. And I actually, I put one up on Twitter, but I've got a copyright. Um, yeah, I was going to say, you're not getting away with that. <laughs> um, and it was just it was just like that. And the problem he's got, Ryan, I have, I've always thought this, that in the men's game, I guess in the women's game, it's maybe the same, but certainly in the men's game, that you have the serve and the return. And if you get to ball six the serve and the return are irrelevant. You're then at a neutral point. The, the the benefit that you get from serving has gone if ball six is in court. Yeah. And what Murray's doing too often is he's serving. That's ball one. The return comes back. So he gets a big first serve. The return comes back. That's ball two. Ball three, he has a chance. And he's not doing it on ball three. And there was a specific example that I used and I put on Twitter where Tommy Paul is hitting a winner off ball six. And you've got a problem if if the other guys are hitting clean winners on ball six, if you've got a big first serve. There's a problem there for Murray. Mm. But I'll say this, he was better at that last this week than he was the previous weeks. Uh, and it should be said that Tommy Paul, um, while not someone we would have expected to cause big problems um, in this year against those kind of players, uh, he did go on and win the title uh, in Stockholm. He beat, uh, as well as Murray Taylor-Fritz, Francis Tiafo, and then Denis Shapovalov in three sets in the final. Uh, I think that takes him up to a career high of 43 inside the top 50 properly uh, for the first time in his career. Um, but yeah, I mean, admittedly, not not so. I mean, where's his cap backwards? So I'm really going to struggle to, like, if you wear a backwards cap, you're going to have to be a really special player for me to enjoy. The exception being Denis Shapovalov, who sometimes wears a backwards cap, although not always. But because he is one of the most aesthetically pleasing players on tour, I'm willing to make an exception. Um, George, I, I don't know where you stand on backwards hats. Unfortunately, I've seen your sartorial stylings, and I I think you might have worn a backwards cap in your in your career at some point. I'm more of a forwards cap man, I have to say. Okay, <laughs> but uh, other I, than that, I, other I, than I, that, Tommy, other than that, Tommy Paul thoughts, comments, concerns. Yeah, I mean, I think Tommy Paul seems like a decent enough guy, decent enough player. He's one of those I look at. I don't see him necessarily hitting top ten. I think he might. Go up to top twenty, but I've made these calls too too often now to kind of say <laughs> it's kind of pointless putting a ceiling on these guys anymore. But what I would say is um, the bit I saw of him this week, he's playing really good tennis, and again, it can be a shred of comfort for Murray, and it is only a shred because, as Calvin says, you know, 
he should be beating guys like Tommy Paul. But it, the shred of comfort is if you're going to lose to anyone, at least lose to the bloke who goes on and wins the bloody title. And mm. that's what's happened again. Um, so that that's the only upside I can really see. But I, I agree. The bits I saw of the cinema match, I didn't watch the whole thing, but the bits I saw were really impressive from Murray. And it looked quite a dominant performance from him where he just kind of outthought Sinner. Um, so I, I think that's really encouraging. Doesn't again speak too well of our criticism of Sin and being a bit one-dimensional. I think someone like Murray, we we thought could expose that and did. Um, and just on the fast start point, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, you, I always kind of do compare Novak and Andy's games most similarly, stylistically, of the big guys. Um, and Novak, I, I almost think it sometimes does a bit of like what I consider like a Tyson Fury, seeing as we're going to carry on with the boxing metaphors today, but. Fury, the way he like overwhelmed Wilder in the first uh, few rounds of that second fight was kind of a big shock to everyone because he normally likes to feel his way in. And I, I do think Novak does feel his way. He doesn't lose that many sets, but he is a feeler and then goes. I've seen him occasionally turn it on early doors like Nadal, Australian Open 2019, was that? Where he just turned up and looked like Nadal wasn't going to win a point all match. Just absolutely blew him away. Um, but there is definitely more of a control with Novak and Murray. It's like a painful experience watching him. It has been throughout his career. Like I think that's what has endeared him a lot to people that every match is a struggle. Every match feels like he's had to run the marathon and he, he's really had to dig in to win it. But Calvin's totally right. At this stage, it needs to become a little bit more straightforward because he's good enough to make it straightforward. Um, so hopefully that comes on the right track. Um. Another thing that I thought, and I, he said this a few weeks ago, and I, I've sort of put a lot of thought into it with Murray. One of these weird things that he gets into his head, where he said that the difficulty he's had since coming back is that he doesn't know the players and he doesn't have any footage or data on them. And I, I never get this with Murray. I know he's, he's always been heavily into this idea of tagging matches. His mum was one of the sort of first people who was doing it, video tagging points, finding patterns of play in opponents. And I think he's almost become a bit like overly dependent on it when he's really no need to. Like he lost to someone, I think he was like a challenger he lost to it. He kind of put it down to like he'd never seen this guy play before and he didn't have any data on him. And I'm like, you're one of the top 20 tennis players of all time. Like you're playing somebody who's ranked 150 in the world. Like you don't need match tagging and, and to be going through video analysis to be able to beat this guy. And I think it's like something again that he's always done in his career. And it's like a habit that he, he can't seem to get out of now. And I thought the other day, he knows Sinner, obviously, because Sinner's been, Sinner, he, he watches tennis, Andy Murray. He watched Sinner for the last couple of years. He knows TFO. He knows her catch, that kind of thing. The problems he had, he's like, he's probably never seen Tommy Paul before or hasn't seen a great deal of him. And he seems to not be able to, he seems to always have to want this spell of, of kind of seeing what they're like, what kind of, and it's one of his great things that he does brilliantly. He susters players out, which I know, again, I don't get why he needs the video because he's one of the best ever at sussing players out and problem solving on the job. So I don't know why he puts this big emphasis on, I need to know who the players are. I need the data and that kind of thing. There's no need for it. He, he, and he's going to have to drop that because, there's going to be a lot of players who he's going to play against in the first and second round of these tournaments who he's not seen before, who he's not playing before. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of, you know, he is, and I we use this phrase advisedly, he is one of tennis's great problem solvers. And he, you know, he 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 has a reputation for a reason. I wonder if it's 
almost just become a crutch in his head that he kind of wants to lean on. I don't know. It, it's a very interesting point. And it's something I'd forgotten him saying a lot of. And yeah, as you say, Calvin, it's going to start happening more and more. The, the data and the tagging is, is very good. I'm always a bit sceptical about it because it's things such as like, where do they serve on big points? What, where do they serve on the juice side when it's 30 all? And he likes to develop patterns of like what happens in patterns of that. But I always say the same on these things is that, the date that you might have, it depends on the situation. It's all right looking at a match before or two matches before that they've played. Where do they save at 30 all? But then they might be thinking, well, the guy who I'm playing now, his backhand's a bit weaker or he normally chips back on his backhand. So I'm going to go backhand serve. That doesn't mean they're going to go there for Murray's second serve or, or Murray's serve at 30 all and vice versa. They might be a left-hander. They might be playing a left-hander. I think it can only, the patterns only develop when you're playing the same player and where they're going to go on those points. So I think it kind of over values it that's what i'm saying so if we were going to grade murray's season based on an a b c d e f system what what letter do you give him um i will give him i'm going to say a b i think because look there's there's room for improvement but he seems to be back injury free at the minute and he's beating very good players again. Um, the improvement, if we're gonna, if he's gonna get back to where he wants to be back, he's gonna have to beat the very best players, um, and he's gonna have to win more than two matches in a row. Um, I mean, I'm in the same ballpark. I, I asked the question kind of early in the year. You know, if Andy Murray's still playing these challenges in Italy on dodgy streams, uh, you know, by the end of 2021. Is he going to bother? And I, I didn't think he would. And I, I regarded that as like, that's the sort of zero progress mark. He's well beyond that. You know, he's just beaten Yannick Sinner, who's at World Tour Finals this week. So, you know, he, he's he's clearly beyond that. I would say a B minus, because I think there's still been quite a few performances where it's like, he's just not put away lesser players. He clearly, his best day now is a decent level but he still has too many not his best days. Georgie, are you, you going to be more generous? I, I'm going to go the other way. I'm, I'm putting him firmly in the C category. Um, I think we've got a bit of recency bias here. I think if we're talking about the season as a whole, first half was crap, to be honest, like until Wimbledon was pretty poor. Um, that is probably a bit harsh, saying completely crap, but it, it wasn't good. There were a lot of stop starts, a lot of things that went wrong. Um, but I think he's pulled his way backups. Wimbledon was pretty good. Um, a few good matches on the grass, but this back end of the season, the hard court, I think there'll be firm belief next year. Um, he'll be comfortably back top 50 if he stays fit and possibly higher. But if you're looking at the season as a whole, still 143 in the world. He hasn't made that much progress on the ranking. I, th- I can't remember if we actually predicted his ranking at the end of the season, but I've got a feeling I Mike said he'd be top 30. <laughs> so, so I can't really grade him any higher than a C when he's 111 places lower <laughs> than I said at the start of the season. So we will send uh, we'll send the Love Tennis Pod elves into the archives to find your exact prediction and see see indeed where he where he came. And I think I say B because basically on I think you've got to take the season where he ends the season, like where, where he is yeah. now. And I think that that's where I'd say with a B is, yeah, he was, he was pretty rubbish pre-Wimbledon. Um, but I, I, I kind of think that's where he's 
where he's at now. I do think there's a couple of good signs. He's that last couple of weeks. He's beaten her catch and he's beaten um, Sinner. And I think employing, uh, he's, he's set on the new coach. And I think that, that looks to me like, right, I need to do something a bit different and I'm giving it a good run at this. And I imagine, I don't know if he's a trial that he's having with Kirill or whether they've settled on a year. So they, um, so they said originally, and George may have a more recent update on this, that they originally said that he was coming on board for a trial week with a view to joining the team permanently, which I think basically means unless we eight each other, we, we're going to do this reasonably long term. Um, and I've certainly heard nothing to the contrary. And I would suggest that the fact that, that without being too re- like results orientated, you know, the win over Sinner, would probably suggest that that things have gone all right. He said it was his best best win of the year, so I think you know you would you'd think that Esteban is here to stay. Um, yeah, I, I think he'll be top thirty by the end of next year, which is obviously what I meant at the start of this year. Great. I mean, that's just it's not such a big prediction at this point. Like you know, he's just beaten Yannick Sinner. Like no, no, sorry, George, you're not getting away with that. Calvin, you were going to add something. Um. Yeah, I, I think it was no. All I was going to say was I think it was noticeable that he was definitely less, um, shall we say, vocal at his coaching bench this week. Um, okay. And I don't know whether that was maybe out of respect for someone he doesn't know as well, or um, whether that's something that Kirill had said straight away. Maybe I'm not standing for you just abusing me whenever you miss <laughs> a backhand down the line, which um, you know maybe some of his other team will stand for. <laughs> maybe having the fresh voice saying please stop shouting at us uh, has cut through um, we shall see uh, I did mention the WTA finals we're, we're in the middle of them uh, as we speak so it's maybe hard to draw too many conclusions um, I would like to say that I w- we made a lot of predictions last week about WTA finals the kind of overwhelming theme of which was we haven't got a blooming clue what is going to happen I think if you go back and listen to the tape I said, don't sleep on Paolo Bedosa, don't sleep on Annette Contivate, and I don't fancy Arena Sabalenka's chances much, which overall, Paolo Bedosa's currently 2-0, Sabalenka got battered 6-love, six, 6-4 six, by her, and Annette Contivate is unbeaten as well. So I'm going to take some credit here. I, I think I I said, I thought Contivate's for my... Contivate, sure. George, it's Contivate. Contivate, sorry, slipping into bad habits. Um, and I, I think I might have said Krichigovic. Yes, yes, who's yes, won one set, I think. However, she can still go through, I hasten to add. So our listeners may know by tomorrow that Krichigovic has stormed into the semis where she's really about to start playing. But I would add that I did also say that all eight of them could win, which means I picked all eight of them. So any predictions actually kind of pointless. Okay. Um, well, I, I remember if we, I, I, I know that if we do go back in the vaults I did predict that Paola Bedosa would um, not with a huge amount of confidence admittedly but um, <laughs> she's, and George said George said I specifically remember this George said she wouldn't because she doesn't beat the top players in the world and then she beat the number two in the world or is she number one number one in the world now no it's yeah. Sarah still number two but she's number one seed <laughs> yeah I, to be fair, I did also caveat that point by saying that the biggest players of the world aren't here. So it is, <laughs> yeah. it is a bit of a false economy. Anyway, let's let's not get ahead of ourselves because you, you're only into the semi-finals. And as we well know, if Krajigovic sneaks through, she it, will be blasted. I was looking at the um, the permutations. I mean, that's not hugely likely, but it could happen, Calvin. 
Um, yeah, I, I've not actually seen much of the tournament. I understand it's been quite a success, though, by, from what I've read. I think they've had pretty good, uh, pretty good crowds, and everyone seems to have enjoyed it. I saw some talk of maybe they should look at doing more women's events in Mexico. Uh, um, I think it's got seems to have gone down really well. I mean, it's a massive market, isn't it? You know, people people forget how big a country it is. Just and okay, that I couldn't name you uh, a current Mexican player unless I'm missing someone really obvious. Um, the the Mexican woman, female number one, is uh, Renata Zarazua, who's 127 in the world. So I can't. And the Mexican male number one, anyone? No, it's Gerardo Lopez Villasenor. Who, well, who, who, who is, actually... by the way, uh, Jerry Lopez uh, <laughs> is Cam Norrie's best mate. Ah, interesting. Um, and am, uh, I, am, I, am I right in saying that he may have beaten Luke in Texas this week? Have I made that up? No, he didn't. He lost to Paul Jupp in Texas. Uh, I knew he'd played some. Yeah. He's, a, he's a big lad. Looks a, Actually looks a lot like um, Berrettini. Okay. Um, wow. but, um, yeah, I was going to say, that's, I mean, that's, that's big. That's really big. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. Facially, maybe doesn't look like him. He's got a big sort of build, big like looks a bit like him when he plays as well. Um, but no, um, no backup. Yeah, he went to um, but yeah, he went to um, TCU with Cam Norrie, and um, I know that Cam often takes him round as a hitting partner um, yeah. at the yeah. tournament. I didn't know he was. It's a strange one, in Mexico though, because they pre-pandemic, I don't think they've really happened much since. They had a lot of futures tournaments there and a few challenges, and there's always plenty of Mexican players playing and they can all play, but mm. they don't ever seem to really break break through. I don't know whether that's a finance thing. You, they, a lot of them go to um, American Uni to play. Yeah. Um, so. Interesting. Well, maybe it's maybe that it may well be the uh, the new Belarus, who knows, um, the new hotbed of tennis talent and and i've always said we should go and do uh like weird little feature episodes on specific countries and if the mexican tourist board are listening we're very open um and george actually folds you can just you can flat pack him into the hole you don't even need a seat for him so um, we definitely could could pop over uh, more on the wca finals next week when we shall know things with a bit more certainty uh the atp world tour finals got underway Tonight, we're recording this on Sunday night. So we've got, I think, one result in the bag for you, which is Daniil Medvedev uh, beating Hubert Hercats in three sets. Um, the courts, uh, court speed klaxon sounded. The courts are very quick, apparently. Um, Daniil Medvedev said maybe the crowd would have enjoyed it more uh, if they were slower, because I don't think he faced a single break point uh, on his serve, which is pretty remarkable, uh, given that he did lose the first set, albeit in a tie break. Uh, George, who who kind of sticks out? Um, the group draw we obviously have, which I suppose makes things a little bit easier. Although I, I looked at it and thought I I don't think I I don't think I know more about this now that I've seen the red group and the green group as they're really creatively called this year. Um, do do you feel you you know more about the tournament now? Um. Not massively. I, I still, I think a, a quick indoor court favours Zverev most, I would say. Like, I expect his serve to perfectly. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think Novak is brilliant on quick indoor courts as well. My, I've questioned Novak's motivation for this tournament for a few years now, so I'm not sure I'd be backing Novak. This is one of the rare tournaments where I wouldn't come into it being like, Novak's definitely going to win this. Which yeah. means he's almost certainly going to win it now. Um, <laughs> I, I would be looking at Zverev, really. Um, Medvedev is obviously in great form on any hard court. Pretty good. Sissipas' form's not 
good enough that he should come out of that group with Rude and Rude. So my, so my, my, yeah, I think the group draw is is important to mention. Um, the green group being Djokovic, Tsitsipas, Rublev, and Rude. I think the problem with picking, well, maybe not Medvedev because you'd expect him to win, but um, Zverev, Berrettini, Herkats, Medvedev. It's hard to see which two, well, which one, I suppose, of Zverev, Berrettini, and to a lesser extent, Herkats comes out of that group. You know, I think I'm not sure what Zverev, Berrettini head-to-head record is like, but in those conditions, I know Berrettini's not had a great end to the year, but. Would you not think that that's a bit of a, a, a coin toss that match? I think I think that group is tougher, but I still think Zverev and Medvedev will come through that, and I'd expect Novak and Tsitsipas to come out the other one. Um, Tsitsipas might not purely because he's playing like garbage at the minute, but if yeah. he if he plays anywhere close to what he should be able to, he should come out that group. Um, yeah, I mean, I. I think Zverev is the favourite from what I've seen of the conditions so far, really. Mm. Uh, Calvin, uh, who is the second best dressed man at the ATP World Tour Finals? Um, whoever it is is way behind the first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, um, the picture we saw yesterday, there was some. I tell you, the worst, the worst is definitely Rublev. Uh, by a mile with those yeah, Rublev, terrible jeans that he's got. The, the ripped jeans, which are also quite dirty, I found when I zoomed in. And then one of those like weird jackets with lots of sort of inexplicable pockets and buttons. Yeah, I can just imagine, as I said on Twitter yesterday, I can just imagine Berrettini, a very sartorially uh, eloquent man, um, was um, what he what his thoughts were when Rublev turned up um, <laughs> at that photo shoot. Um, yeah. It's a strange tournament though, isn't it? There's a lot of players out of form in there. Like yeah, Berrettini I, yeah. in no sort of form. Um uh, City Pass in no sort of form. Rublev's in terrible form. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, those three are just, yeah, there's just nothing to go on. We don't know anything, really. You wonder whether the Italian crowd might help Berrettini out a little bit. Um, the match that's, when he plays wherever, it's actually just started now as we're recording it. Um, they played it in Madrid, didn't they, at altitude? Yeah. And, and three sets. I seem to remember won. that Zverev won that relatively comfortably. Was it three? It was three, yeah. Berrettini won the first in a tiebreak, and then, and then Zverev, yeah, he kind of moved away. But um, yeah, right. I don't know. I mean, I, I, th- I think it's got, I think it's got intrigue. I mean, we won't discuss it too much as a matchup because, as you say, they're literally playing as we speak, um, which could well decide the group. Uh, l- let's talk uh, just finally in some more certain terms about the next gen finals uh, because Carlos Alcaraz has once again, I mean, I don't know how many times I can say Carlos Alcaraz has announced himself to the world, because if you haven't heard of him yet, it's because you don't listen to this podcast. Um, he beat Sebastian Corder in the final in Milan, 4-3, 4-2, 4-2. This was, of course, a first of four, best of five sets. So first of four games, best of five sets, which, Calvin, I know you were saying you're a pretty big fan of the format, actually, which, um, you know, Calvin being into change. I do quite like it as a mix-up, to be honest. Um, I wish maybe some more tournaments would do it. Um, I think it adds, it kind of gets rid of the dead periods that you can sometimes get in tennis matches. The sort of, as I've said before, the kind of two or three all games when not much is happening. Mm. Um, it means that there's there's a lot of pressure on every game and, and everything. You get more sort of momentum switches, even if you're in control of the match, you can be two sets to love up and have a bad start and suddenly the pressure's on again. 
Um, I'm surprised that tennis as a whole has, hasn't mi mixed around with different scoring formats at different events. Well, this is uh, this is something I write about all the time, Pelvin. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the reasons George isn't a full time journalist anymore, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, I think the the biggest challenge that, or I suppose the biggest fear that has stopped any kind of proper change coming into the lower levels is actually what you do with the ranking points. I think it's a really difficult thing to change in in the minds of the executives to change how you score matches uh, to then contribute to ranking points. Um, so I think I personally have been calling for this for a while at like 250 and 500 level. Like these tournaments does not, they need to start doing something different to have even the slightest appeal. Um, but I think that's one of the biggest reservations people have is like, how do you have a different ranking system for one event? Sorry, scoring system. So I think it would need to be brought in across the board if it was ever to come in. So in, I think the good example, I think the good example is snooker. Um, so snooker is obviously has a lot of similarities with tennis in that it's a tour event. It has, you know, events every week on the, the professional tour. And obviously it has the majors, you know, the, the worlds, the, the UK champs, which kind of have their a pretty set scoring system. And the, the scoring system doesn't change much. Like it's still one point for a red, seven points for a black, and the game is still the same. It's really just the format of the, the game. So they have a, a one frame shootout, which I guess the tennis equivalent would be you just play a tie break and that's kind of it, um, which I don't happen to like. But anyway, uh, and there's a few other kind of variations, but they're not radical changes, but they give each tournament a kind of character, which I think is what really matters. Um, I know at a local level, when the ATP comes to town, that's enough. But sometimes you're right, George, these tournaments don't sell and they don't have international appeal. Like, you know, the ATP Stockholm this week was pretty good field, but it's not going to have garnered much more international pull. And there are lots of other reasons for this than any other tournament. And, you know, if it had been the ATP Stockholm, but it was first to four, best of five, or it was like, you know, no ad scoring or, or it was just something a bit different and you can give it a bit of a marketing spin. And, and this is something they do in, in snooker as well. You know, when they change up the, if it's a, if it's the one frame shootout, for example, you know, they, they give it a bit more of a specific marketing spin because it used to be, you could just sell tickets in your hometown because it was a professional tennis tournament and people would come, but you can't anymore. There's competition for eyeballs and, you know, tournaments could make a lot of money if they were able to sell themselves internationally. I, I don't really see how it affects the rankings. I don't get why that would be any different because you're still... Get, the ranking points are awarded for where you get in the tournament. So, so it's more like a criticism of how you have to work for the ranking points. So if they're the same at every different tournament... So I'm saying... So if you imagine one 250 decided they were going to go to best of three sets, first to four, which yeah. I, I'm not saying is on the table, but just for the example yeah. and then you had another 250 of the same week that's stuck with best of oh you're saying because it's less tennis you shouldn't get more ranking yeah, points. Less, yeah that's what i'm saying in people's heads at that sort of level that's the sort of conversation that's great oh, but who cares, who cares? I, i'm totally with you girl. You, you're, you're preaching to the conversion i'm right with you i'm just saying that is a mindset that has been an issue when trying to affect rankings changes it's that kind of level of fairness and i think if you don't get it across the board at say 250 level you're not going to get it through like one or two events, if that makes sense. It has to be a, a widespread change rather than a, a small one, I think. 
I, I could see I could see that being an issue if you were going to do first of four, best of three. But I think first of four, best of five is there's not a great deal of difference in the amount of tennis played. I don't think there's any difference in the amount of tennis played. I don't like. I know in just uh, junior tournaments in Britain they've brought in best of uh, first of four, best of three with sudden death juices, and it's basically like it's just it's just a shootout. You don't ever feel like getting it in. But but even what about something like like make all two fifties this this scoring system. And then you separate that. That's why they're different from a 500 or a Masters. That's exactly that can, what I think they should do. Like, yeah, um, like different scoring system at 250, different scoring system at 500, and then more traditional. Yeah. You may as well. I mean, people aren't watching these events. Like, you may as well just go mad, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> go mad. <laughs> it's a beautiful note to end a tennis podcast, isn't it? People are watching these events. Do what you want. <laughs> Some um, people are watching them. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not enough. And we want uh, more. more. More on tennis people aren't watching next week with George Belshaw. Um, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, please, as always, do give us a follow on our Love Tennis Pod. Um, you'll be able to do our special listener survey in the next couple of weeks. Uh, look out for that. Do leave us a rating or a review and give us some feedback on that survey. We want to hear what you think. Um, and basically, Calvin wants some more praise from those fake Twitter accounts he's got. Don't tell him he hates coaching analysis that was <laughs>